the Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 26. So if you could look at Matthew chapter 26 and hold your finger there, I want to just read a couple of verses, just two verses in Hebrews chapter 12. So you go to Matthew 26, I go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 verse 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Particularly, first part of verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In life, we need fixed points. We need anchors. We need secure moorings. The mariner looks for the North Star. Soldier on maneuvers, he looks to his grid map. The surveyor looks through his theodolite. The carpenter, his spirit level. The architect, his blueprint. The designer, his template. All of these things are fixed points. Now, whenever Sally and I get married, you know why you're setting up house and uh, you're doing your bits and pieces when it comes to decorating. And I know our, our cell group knows this story well. I've said it a few times, but I'll tell you generally. And uh, being a, a non-expert at DIY, uh, having never papered in my life before, although my dad was a good paper, but I never picked it up from him. Johnny picked up a lot from his dad, so he's an expert in DIY. Uh, and it came to papering. And of course, Sally picked the most expensive paper you could find. And the heaviest paper, Hessian. Anybody old enough to remember Hessian paper in here? I mean, it really, it was like oil cloth. It was like lino on the walls. It was heavy. And of course, we didn't know a thing about it. And so I didn't know that you needed a plumb line. Hadn't got a clue. Didn't know that that first sheet of paper you put on the wall, you had to plumb it to get it straight so you could put the next piece straight. So I didn't know anything about that. So I went to the corner of the wall and I lined it with the corner of the wall. Now the corner of the wall looked straight to my eye. And so I lined it up, pasted it, got it up, put the next one up and then the next one and then I began to notice that it was getting a bit ski-whiff. And by the, by the fourth or fifth sheet, it was sideways <laughs> because the wall had been off. And there was no fixed point. There was no plumb line to do that. I mean, we used to have some DIY disasters, didn't we, Darren? Uh, this is nothing to do with what I'm preaching about. Tonight, but I just While it's in my brain, let me throw it out to you. Uh, you have to sometimes laugh at yourself, haven't you? Uh, first time we ever put up a curtain rail. This shows you how green I was. I didn't know that you had to put roll plugs in the wall. I thought you just put the screws in the wall. So I got the screwdriver out, screwed all the, all the, the curtain rail into the wall, hung up these heavy curtains. We sat down the settee to watch them, admiring it, and then it just went pop, 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 pop. The whole lot just fell at our feet. And we looked at each other and said, why did that happen? <laughs> we hadn't got a clue. <laughs> So you need fixed points. The ship's captain 
He charts his course. If it's one degree off at the beginning, by the time he goes several hundred miles, he mightn't even reach the country he's intending to go to, never mind the port. That one degree suddenly becomes more degrees and more degrees off. Jesus is our fixed point of reference. He is our north star. He is our template. He is our plumb line. Looking unto Jesus. Now this is a continual looking. It's not a once in a while looking. It's a continual looking. It's making absolutely sure. Believe it or not, I used to work on a building site, laboring. And the brickies, whenever they were doing the corner, they always had to have the bricks level. And every couple of courses, you would see them putting the spread level, making sure it was level. Every couple of courses, making sure it was absolutely level. Because it was so important to do that. So Jesus is the one that we look to again and again and again. And if we get our eyes off him, then we start to lose our bearing. We start to go off course. We get discouraged. We get disillusioned. We get disappointed. We get anxious. We get worried. Maybe even get fearful or maybe even bitter because we get our eyes off Jesus. And the trouble is, if we get our eyes off Jesus, we're going to get our eyes on something else. instead. Something else is going to take up our attention. We're going to focus on something else rather than on him. Peter was a man who had difficulty keeping his eyes on Jesus. And the scriptures tell us three times it was recorded that he got his eyes off Jesus and on to something else instead. And that briefly is what I want to share with you tonight. The three times that Peter got his eyes off Jesus and on to something else instead. And the problems that that caused. And I want you to be encouraged to keep your eyes on the Lord. And so in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Then answered Peter, sorry, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. What a boast. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, you would think that that would stop him in his tracks, wouldn't you? But, I mean, Peter is in full flow here. Even the Lord rebuking him is not stopping him. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. The first mistake Peter made was he got his eyes on himself. Proverbs 3 and 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. He got his eyes on himself. And this led to pride. 
He thought he was better than the rest. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And ever a man was set up to fall by the words of his own mouth, it was Peter, wasn't it? He was just so full of pride at this point. He honestly could not see himself in any shape, form, or fashion letting the Lord down. He just could not see that. Even though the Lord told him to his face, he still could not accept it. He was just so proud of himself. This led to presumption. He imagined that he was stronger than the rest. Paul says, let him who stands take heed lest he falls. And so he was presuming that he was stronger than all the rest. Now, we fail in all these areas too. Young Christian couples not yet married decide we will go on a holiday together And because we are strong, and because we can overcome any temptation, we will not bother with the expense of getting separate rooms. We will just get the same room. Big mistake. You're not as strong as you think. And many a young couple has discovered they just were not as strong as they thought they were, as they presumed they were. And they have fallen into that temptation. And so he imagined he was stronger than the rest. This led to presumption. He felt that he was braver than the rest. This led to promises that he could not keep. Even though all of them fail you, I'll not fail you. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. That was very presumptuous, wasn't it? That led him to promises he could not keep. Thought he was braver than all the rest. And that's what happens when we get our eyes on ourselves instead of on the Lord. When we trust in our own, what we feel is our strengths, what we feel is our own morality, what we feel is our own integrity, and all those things are good to have. But if we're trusting in that alone, rather than trusting in the Lord and looking to Him continually. We're heading for a fall at some point and a bitter disappointment. Way back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 9. It tells the story of, and we haven't time to go into it in any depth, of course. It tells the story of uh, Saul. King Saul. And how that is out looking, him and his servant out looking for the donkeys that had escaped from his father. Uh, little did he know that that was in the providence of God that he would meet the prophet Samuel. In uh, verse 17, So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Remember the people that asked 
the prophet for a king to beat everybody else around them. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today and tomorrow. I will let you go and tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? That phrase, and on whom is all the desire of Israel? As soon as the prophet said that, Saul knew exactly what that meant. In other words, Samuel was telling him, you are the one that God has chosen to be king. Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak this to me? Immediately, he did not feel qualified for the task. That was good. Immediately, he looked at himself and thought, How in the world could I ever be king of Israel? I come from the smallest tribe. I come from the least of the families of the smallest tribe. What is there about me that could possibly be king over all of Israel? And then in chapter 10, the next chapter, when it came time to publicly uh, set the scene for this, in verse 20, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen, and Saul the son of Kish was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hiding among the equipment, or the stuff, as the King James calls it. There he is, hiding among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you not see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is none like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. First Samuel chapter 15. Some time had passed. He is now king. He's out fighting battles against the Philistines and the Ammonites and so forth, the Amalekites. And the prophet Samuel tells him to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Reminds them of how they ill-treated children of Israel when they came out of the, coming through the wilderness. And so he tells them to utterly destroy all of them, including all of their livestock and everything, from the king right down to the very cows in the meadows. Everything. And so, Saul gathered, verse 4, Saul gathered all the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. 
Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, and get out from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Eden. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was Samuel saying, and it was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the cattle which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and to the rest, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down, why did you swoop down in the spoil and do this evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back King Agag of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you from being king. There's the tragic story of a man who got his eyes of the Lord and got his eyes on himself and built a monument to himself and did not obey the clear-cut commandments of the Lord. Peter was a man who got his eyes on himself. Peter was a man also who got his eyes on his circumstances. Matthew chapter 14. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up onto the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. 
And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. All of those fishermen's superstitions all rose up in their hearts, and they were convinced this was a ghost they were seeing. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now we read over that, and we've read it a million times, haven't we? Do you ever just stop and think the incredible step of faith that this man was about to take? No human being before or since has ever walked on water. This would be an incredible feat. If this had been you in that boat or me, would we have said, Lord, if it is you, bid me come on the water? I don't think so. If it had been me, I would have said, Lord, if this is you, you come on the boat. Lord, if this is you, stop this terrible storm. But Peter said, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. That must have so pleased Jesus. That a man of flesh and blood, an ordinary five-eighths human being, would actually ask the Lord to allow him to do this. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Try to put yourself in his shoes, in his sandals, Try to imagine putting your leg over the boat. Remember, this is in the midst of a storm. The water is rising. It's raging. The sea's whipping up. And you actually are going to step out into that, off the boat, into pure water. That's a big step, isn't it? But you see, he was so looking onto Jesus... At this moment, there was not a doubt in his mind that he could do this. Not a doubt. Not for one second did he doubt that he couldn't get to Jesus if Jesus would bid him come. He was so quick to do this that within a second of Jesus saying, come, he had his leg over the end of the boat and he was heading out towards Jesus. That is incredible faith, is it not? You have to take your hat off to this man, haven't you? Well, I do anyway. I don't know about you. Looking on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. When he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. When he got his eyes on his circumstances. When he got his eyes of Jesus and he looked around at the circumstances. Just for a moment, for a brief moment, whether that was six steps or ten steps, I don't know. One step would have been enough. But just for that brief moment, 
When he had his eyes on Jesus, nothing was impossible to him. Nothing. But as soon as he took his eyes of Jesus and looked at the circumstances. Now remember that wind and that storm had been blowing for hours. For hours. But in that moment when he got his eyes on Jesus, he put all of that to one side and he looked on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But as soon as he took his eyes off him again, not just his physical eyes, but his spiritual eyes, and as soon as he looked at his circumstances again, suddenly that fear engulfed him. And his faith disappeared. And that fear just took over in that moment. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Nothing wrong with short prayers. Sometimes you haven't got much else to pray on a short prayer, haven't you? But that was a good prayer, wasn't it? And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and he caught him. And he said, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? You know, I was reading that this past couple of days, and I was reading it this afternoon, and I set the Bible down on my lap as I was reading it, and I thought, David, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? You know why we doubt? Because we get our eyes of the Lord. That's why we doubt. We get our eyes on our circumstances. And suddenly those circumstances seem bigger and greater and more powerful than the Lord himself, if we want to be honest. And we begin to doubt. Oh, you of little faith. Did Jesus mean his faith was now little, now? Or did he mean that his faith was always little at this point in his Christian journey? Well, if you can walk on water in little faith, what would you not do with great faith? But he says, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Why did you doubt? You shall say unto this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea. And do not doubt in your heart. <laughs> it's that doubt that gets us, isn't it? It's that little doubt that just creeps in. And suddenly our eyes are off the Lord. And they're back onto our circumstances. We've all been there, haven't we? Things have been bad, they've been tough, they've been rough. And in the midst of it, somehow or other, we got our eyes on the Lord. And we felt we were walking on water. We felt we were getting there. We were getting through this. We're doing well. We're reaching our goal. And then suddenly a doubt comes in and our eyes is back off the Lord and we're under circumstances. And we start to sink under the pressure and under the stress. 
He got his eyes on his circumstances. Asaph in Psalm 73 was another man that got his eyes on his circumstances. We read it so often, haven't we? When he looked at the prosperity of the wicked, and he said they don't suffer like other men. They don't go through what we go through. They have everything their heart desires, he said. But look at us. Look at me. My feet were almost gone. Well nigh slipped. That's how he felt. He got his eyes on his circumstances. Here was a wonderful man of God. Here was a one of David's praise and worship leaders. Here was a man that led the worship in the temple. Here was a man that spent most of his time in the house of the Lord. And yet, and yet, in spite of that, he began to look at some circumstances in his life that just wasn't adding up. It seemed to be that those who weren't following the Lord were doing much better than he was doing in his life. And that's a mistake we make too, isn't it? Sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves, don't we? We look at ourselves and think, well, things is rough. And you look at somebody else who's living like the devil. In fact, he's probably living more respectable than the devil. And they look at him and think, everything's going well for them. But look at me, I'm living for the Lord and I'm in all kinds of trouble. That's a big mistake. And Asaph, that was his position he was in. But if you read on through that psalm, he went back to the house of the Lord. They began to think it through more carefully. And he says that God has set their feet in slippery places. <laughs> Looks like they're doing okay now, but one day they won't be doing okay. So for a moment he got his eyes in his circumstances. Elijah got his eyes in his circumstances too, didn't he? He had performed that wonderful feat of defeating the prophets of Baal with the sword on Mount Carmel. He called fire down from heaven. God showed up. It was wonderful. The whole nation saw who the true God was. Surely the people would humble themselves and come back to God, he thought, but they didn't. Jezebel chased him out of the country, said that she was going to kill him, and he ran to Beersheba. He couldn't have went any further. That's the very south of the country he can go. And he got under a Jupiter tree and he says, O oh Lord, take away my life. It is enough. I'm no better than my father's. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Things are the same as they were before I did all of this. I'm the only one left. There's nobody else cares about you, only me. He's having a real pity party, wasn't he? He really was. He was laying on thick, wasn't he? And then the angel of the Lord comes to him, strengthens him, encourages him. Tells him that the Lord is 7,000 that has not bowed the knee to Baal or has not kissed him. But you see, just for that moment, he got his eyes on his circumstances. <clears throat> in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha the prophet, Elijah's successor, Verse 8, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. He consulted with the servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent some to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he had warned him. And he was watchful there, not just once or twice. 
Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? He thought there was a spy in the camp. One of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. It was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And a servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Here was a man, and all he could see was the circumstances around him. And they were terrible. They were surrounded by a great army. And so he answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Notice he didn't say, there's more of them than there are of us. That was obvious, wasn't it? I mean, even the servant could see that. That's why he was frightened. He says there's more with us, with us, than there are with them. Because he could see beyond the natural. Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Suddenly, he could see what the prophet could see. Sure, the prophet could see the circumstances too, but he could see beyond them. He could see behind them. He could see what was the real cause of the problem. And he said, open his eyes that he can see this too. Paul and Silas, they got their eyes on the Lord and they kept them on the Lord. In that jail in Philippi at midnight, they were beaten, they were whipped, they were chained, it was dark, it was dingy, it was smelly, it was stinky. And all of a sudden they decided to have a prayer and praise meeting. And they got their eyes on the Lord. They could have got their eyes on their bruises and their beatings and their whippings and their mockings, but they got their eyes on the Lord. And they began to sing and they began to pray and God sent an earthquake. And you know the rest of the story because they were looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. The little woman with the issue of blood, once she got sight of Jesus, she wasn't going to let go. Sure she wasn't. And even though there was a great throng around Jesus, Hundreds of people around the master. But when she knew where he was, she was absolutely determined. Once she saw him, she says within herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. And as many times as she tried to get to him, I'm sure there was many times she was knocked down or knocked sideways or knocked on her backside, if I could put it bluntly. But she kept getting up and she kept going forward because she was determined, come what may, even in her weakness. She had an issue of blood. She may have been anemic. Maybe there was no iron left in her body, but there was steel in her backbone. And she wasn't going to give up until she touched the hem of his garment. And eventually she touched the hem of his garment. And what happened? Instantly, she was healed of that issue of blood. The little Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was sick, she wasn't going to give up either. Sure she wasn't. And she comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 15. Why don't we look at that just very quickly? 
Verse 21 of Matthew 15. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Cana came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Here is a Gentile. And she's calling when she calls him son of David. She knows he's a man of the covenant. He's Messiah, in other words. Here's a Gentile recognizing who he is, but she's a Gentile. She's not a woman of the covenant. Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Here she is, rebuffed again and again. Her faith is being severely tested. But she's got her eyes on Jesus, and she's not going to let go. Then Jesus, then she says, Yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What an answer. Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Got his eyes on his circumstances. I'm beginning to sink, cried, Lord, save me. What a difference between those who got their eyes on their circumstances and those who got their eyes on the Lord. Bartimaeus got his eyes on the Lord, didn't he? Not his physical eyes. He couldn't see anything out of those that were blind. But the eyes of his heart. When he heard that Jesus was passing that way, he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me! Lots of beggars along that street. Only one shouted, Have mercy on me! And they told him to shut up. He was an embarrassment to the crowd. But he kept on shouting. And Jesus heard that shout. And he sent for him. He says, The Master's calling you. <laughs> and Jesus says, What is it that you want me to do for you? Sure, it was obvious, wasn't it? But he wanted the man to say it, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Hmm. He just wouldn't give up. Sure, he wouldn't. Looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of her faith. So Peter got his eyes on himself. He got his eyes on his circumstances. And finally, he got his eyes on someone else. That can be a dangerous thing to do. John chapter 21. Remember Jesus had met Peter and Spoke to him at those three denials. Told him to feed his lambs and feed his sheep. 
Asked him three times, do you love me? Then after that was over, verse 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. Hmm. How would you like to be told that as you're about to launch out into ministry? That one day people will take you where you do not want to go, signifying what death he should die. It's interesting to me that not just what Jesus told them about his future ministry, but what he didn't tell them. You know what he could have told him? He could have said, Peter, I've got some great news for you. I know you're hardly going to believe this, but brace yourself. In six weeks' time, you're going to preach a sermon and 3,000 people will get saved. In your first sermon. What do you think of that? That's what he would have wanted to hear, isn't it? That's what I would want to hear. But he didn't tell him that. He says, Peter, there's times you denied me, but there's going to come a time you will die for me. I'm paraphrasing here. There's a time you promised. You says, Lord, I'll die for you. Well, you will. One day they'll lead you away and you will die for me. So here was a, another opportunity to either to go back or to go forward. To either claim Christ as Lord or deny him again. Aren't you glad Peter went forward and claimed him as Lord? It was a big test, wasn't it? But listen to what happens here. When I had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and he said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? This was John, who said those words. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? He got his eyes on somebody else here. Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So easy to get your eyes on others, isn't it? Maybe if Jesus had told them in six weeks' time, you're going to preach your first sermon and 3,000 people get saved, maybe he wouldn't have ordered about John. Maybe he'd have got puffed up again. And thought, do you know what? 
I'm the big cheese around here after all. <laughs> Nobody wouldn't even consider John. But Jesus said, one day you're going to die for me. But Lord, what about him? <laughs> Suddenly he's interested in John's ministry. Lord, what about him? It's never a great thing to get your eyes on other people's callings or other people's gifts or talents or prosperity. It's, it's, okay to, it's okay to encourage them. It's okay to say, it's a great blessing you've got, brother. It's okay to admire, if I could use that word, their ministry and their callings, their blessings of the Lord. It's okay to admire that, but not to get your eyes on it and wonder... Is what they got better than what I've got? Is the Lord going to bless them more than he's going to bless me? Is he going to use him more than he's going to use me? Because once you get into that, then you get your eyes of the Lord. The Lord knows exactly what we can do and what we cannot do. He knows what we're good at, we're not good at. He knows what gifts we have and what we don't have. So why don't we just leave it up to him? Hmm? What is that to you? Follow thou me. It's none of your business, Peter. I'll do with him what I want. I'm telling you what's going to happen to you. It's none of your business what's going to happen to him. He's trying to get Peter's eyes off John and back onto him again. Don't get your eyes onto somebody else's calling and somebody else's gifting and somebody else's talent and become jealous or envious or feel inferior or feel useless and hopeless because of what they can do. If you've only got one talent, then use it to the best of your ability. You'll get the same reward of those who have five talents. Don't get your eyes on someone else's mistakes and faults and sins. Now, it's okay. There's a great teaching going around today that we cannot judge anything. The Bible says we can't judge the world, but we can judge some things that's going on in church. Not in a nasty way, not in a horrible way, but in a right way. In a right way. Because not everything that's on in church is right. Don't you know that? Because believers are not perfect. But if we get our eyes and we get taken up with and all we think about is sin, mistakes, faults, we'll get our eyes of the Lord. We'll get our eyes on people. Faults are like B.O. It's easier to attack than others than it is in yourself, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the truth. <laughs> There's a guy one time had a trouble, terrible problem with B.O. His workmates didn't know how to tell him. One of them said one day, he says, somebody's got a terrible aftershave on around here. He says, well, it's certainly not me. I never use this stuff. I just couldn't see it. <laughs> isn't it easy to see our faults in somebody else, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, we can spot them a mile away. 
because we've got them. It's easy to put on somebody else. But take the moat out of our own eye, the Bible says. Take the plank out of our own eye before we take the moat out of somebody else, is what Jesus actually said. And so Peter got his eyes on himself. He got his eyes on his circumstances. He got his eyes on somebody else. And none of it was good for him. But thank God he got through all of that. And he went on to become a great servant of God and did get 3,000 saved in the day of Pentecost and went on for the first half of the book of Acts. It was one of the great pillars of the early church and did a fantastic job. And tradition says that eventually he was crucified upside down at his own request and he did die as a martyr for his Lord and Savior. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. So what are we looking at today? Let's get our eyes on the Master. He's the only perfect one, isn't he? He's the rock. He never changes. He's never going to change. Circumstances will change. People will change. Life will change. We will change. He will never change. He's the unchanging changer. Amen? So, looking on to Jesus tonight. Let's pray.